Today's message is going to be about how Jesus Christ, when he comes to raise uh, his disciples' expectation and faith and declare them to be at peace with him, to also declare them to be at a place of mission, like we talked about last week, how Jesus commissions the disciples uh, in this passage, uh, I want to focus on Jesus's response as grace. And so this is this message is titled, A Resurrection of Grace. Jesus does not rise from the dead with a vengeance to exact on those who killed him. Just so you're aware, it is a resurrection of grace. It is not a resurrection of wrathful vengeance. Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself, as we sung about today earlier, also mentioned in Hebrews 3, the wrath of God, which exists. Many people think the Holy Spirit's a dove and the Father, he's the mean one, like an abusive dad and and the relationship. But in Hebrews 3, notice it says, the Spirit says, and then a few verses later, a few lines down the page, it then says, in my wrath I said. The, the Holy Spirit is just as much God as the Father is God. They are co-equal in majesty, different in persons. And, and so we know that the Holy Spirit has wrath. But I want to I highlight that Jesus Christ is bringing a mission of mercy. Those who do not receive the mercy that he wishes to give and to extend to all do come under judgment because they're already under judgment before he offered grace. And so this is a resurrection of grace. And in this passage, we see Jesus doing some amazing things. And and I want to highlight some of the dynamics at work in the disciples' hearts in this passage to describe and help us understand how they got to where they ended up in this scenario, afraid of the Jews. So Jesus gathers the disciples. I want to vindicate Thomas Uh, And by that, I do not mean at all that Thomas was right in being judged. It's just a lot of times Thomas unfairly gets a bad rap. And no, that's not a spinach tortilla. A a bad reputation from this scenario, this this account. He gets a bad rap. He gets a he gets treated uh, wrongly. He's he he did amazing things uh, after the the canons were closed. They weren't written down in scripture, but. But Thomas is not, I'm not saying that Thomas was right in his doubt. I'm not going to say that. But I will kind of highlight that it wasn't just Thomas's uh, condition that he needed to see the the hands and the side. I want to look at the nature of fear and how it relates to what happened in this passage. Why were the disciples in this room with the door locked? You, you know, you only do, you only lock your door if you think someone's going to break in. I hear, I've never been to, uh, I've never been to a Canadian home. I've been to Canada a few times, but I hear they don't even lock their doors up there. Uh, I mean, can, Canadians do some weird stuff, but that, you know, that takes the cake in my, in my book. Not locking your door is, is insane if you live in Dayton. It might be fine if you're in Canada. You lock your door because you're afraid someone's going to break in. And so I want to look at how these disciples have come. They've, they've gone through all of this with Jesus. They've walked on water. They've fed 5,000 plus people. They have seen Jesus raise people from the dead. And they're in a room with the door locked. And they're hiding. They're, you know, they're, uh, they're looking out for 5-0 here. And so they are completely afraid. And I want to see how they became afraid. And I, I want to see how that also is directly tied in with their condition. Not only are they afraid, but also they're fearful uh, of the Jews. They're also unbelieving. And I want to see how those two are really married and they're joined at the hip, so to speak. 
They can't be separated. I want to look at the sin of unbelief as Jesus calls it out and he commands Thomas not to be doubting anymore, but rather to believe. And then finally, I want to look at how one would repent from unbelief. You have unbelief in your heart, whether you know it or not, whether you believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead is not really the essence of the full of what I'm wanting to touch on. That is a, a beginning touchstone. You cannot follow Christ if you do not believe the resurrection is true. Paul says in his, in his epistles over and over again, if the resurrection did not happen, your faith is void and we are of all men to be pitied because the whole world's partying and they're having fun. We Christians abstain from those things that we call sin. And, and so if Christ has not been raised from the dead, there's no future resurrection. Everybody just goes into the grave and then that's it. But Christ did in fact raise from the dead. And so the unbelief that I want to focus on today goes beyond, it includes, of course, believing that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but it touches on so much more on the nature of God, on, on his word over your life, his declaration of your purpose for your life, what you are supposed to be doing, un, undoing the works of the evil one, what Christ says in this passage, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. I want to see how unbelief in any aspect of God's nature or understanding his calling on your life will be uh, married to fear, and it will also uh, distract you from your destiny, and you'll you will miss out significantly on amazing things that God wants to do. I'm fully convinced that God is not the boring one; that I'm the boring one, and God has opportunities for me to impact people's lives all the time, even outside of church meetings, especially outside of church meetings, where He's wanting me to notice the one in the room who needs help, the one in the room who needs a touch, needs a word of encouragement, and I'm the one who isn't tuned in. And so I want to I see how unbelief comes from fear and how it clouds all of our lives. It clouds every aspect of life. And so I want to really go after what uh, rooting out unbelief looks like. Um, this church has had decades of experience and uh, success in praying for people, uh, what we call modern-day inner healing or deliverance from demons or counseling. We have great success in that area, and that is miraculous. And people's lives are miraculously changed. We see them every year. Uh, there are a number or two of one or two people I see in the church, and it's like they went from being this like, you know, unwatered, neglected plant in a pot stuck on a hot deck to rooted near a stream, and that their lives are flourishing. I see it every year. There's nothing other than the miraculous touch of God on a person's life. But what our church doesn't see a lot of is we do not see a lot of physical healing. We do not see a lot of, uh, you know, restored marriages being saved from the brink of destruction. We don't see a lot of, of financial breakthroughs in many ways. And I believe that God has provision for the Book of Acts lifestyle on a church. I know of churches in the earth that live that way. I want to go there. It's been the heart of our church to go there for years. But we must face the unbelief that we have in our hearts. We can no longer continue to walk with Jesus Christ and still have unbelief reigning. And that unbelief comes from a number of places. It may be frustration. It may be uh, failure on your part to understand how God acted in a situation. You may be, uh, you know, kind of concerned with, you know, a, a past grievance or hurt, or you may have even taken up an offense on the behalf of another. But that unbelief, which takes root subtly in our, our lives, it grows. 
and it, it becomes manifest and it starts to infect what we believe about God, what we believe about him sending us uh, to, to do. And so the, the unbelief must be rooted out, and that's really where we're going to end today. We're going to end with an understanding of how we would go about rooting out unbelief, and it all goes back to seeing God and seeing God in the nature of Christ. That is, how Jesus Christ manifested what God was all about, what he was doing. And so Jesus is sending us somewhere and we want to go with him. We want to follow him. And so we better be about removing those things which keep us from doing that. Amen? So let's look at these passages. So Jesus realizes after the resurrection, he's not unaware. It's, he's a good shepherd. He's not a bad shepherd. Jesus isn't bad at being a shepherd. He's a good shepherd. And so he knows that the, the disciples are completely full of fear. They're hiding in a room. And so he goes to meet with them and he goes and he shows them his hands and his side and be these disciples. They're in the shame of failure and sin. I mean, think about it. If you've ever had a best friend in a moment of need, should you turn on that best friend? How could, after the altercation goes down, after whatever circumstances over, how could, what would it be like to then confront that person? Have you ever sinned against someone grievously, like done something really bad. And even if you acknowledge your sin and wish to apologize, it really hurts to come and be reconciled with them. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's really, really uncomfortable. And so you're, you're filled with shame. You're filled with fear. This is what the disciples are in. They have, they have run away from Jesus Christ at his trial. Most of them, except for John, did not make it to the crucifixion the most important hour where uh, it would have been uh, important to be with him. Thanks be to God, Christ was not leaning on the arm of the flesh, but was strengthened by the Spirit on the cross the entire time to take the wrath of God, and in no way despaired so as to not hope that God would justify him, but rather gave it all. He was faithful to the end. He was filled with faith to the end that God would justify the righteous that is only Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ says to one of the people who talk to him in the Gospels, they, somebody comes up and says, you, you know, Jesus, you're good. And Jesus responds rightly to them and says, there is no one good but God. And so he is claiming deity. He's saying, he's not telling that person they're wrong. He's claiming deity. And so Jesus Christ is faithful to the end. His disciples are faithless in this moment. And so he comes to restore them. He's not coming to slap them in the face. He's not coming to lay shame and guilt on them, but rather he speaks the word peace. That's an amazing word to those who are at war, those who are at betrayers. If you uh, maybe talk to someone in the military, you could ask probably Chris Wu about this later, but what happens to deserters in a time of war? Usually they get shot <laughs> if they get caught. They, they capture them they, or they try them. There's a judgment that comes on deserters. That that's it's right to do that. And so what Jesus does is he restores these deserters to fellowship. It's amazing. And so what Jesus does when he speaks peace is he calms their fears, he breaks down the walls of shame, and he begins to invite them to walk with him again. He reinstitutes their discipleship in this moment, and that's what. A, a discipling relationship looks like it. That's what it looks like for you to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to repent from your sins, change, hear his word of peace again, and continue to walk. So Jesus shows up in this room. The doors are locked, and it doesn't say that the doors were unlocked to let him in. I think it's totally reasonable that someone who defeated death uh, can walk through walls. I think that's totally fine. It, it makes no 
a problem in my mind that a glorified body can pass through a barrier without it uh, moving, and also that that glorified body is real and not just some spiritual wafty thing. Uh, we're going to look at in the following weeks in Easter how Jesus Christ eats with the disciples on the shore, proving that he is a real human being. He's He's got a body and he is able to do amazing things with it. It doesn't explicitly say they're locked, but it doesn't also say that he moved through the wall. It doesn't explicitly say that, but I like to believe it because, you know, Jesus does amazing things. So he restores and preaches peace. He dies for their sins, and he doesn't come and execute vengeance. He comes and restores them. This is a revelation of the nature of God. Jesus Christ is only doing what he sees the Father doing. So when you see Jesus preaching peace to the disciples, you are getting a glimpse. You're getting a little tiny revelation, one additional aspect of the nature of God as a God who forgives. That's what Jesus Christ does. Jesus Christ does not come in order to give us some false impression, but rather he, he came to do what? To reveal the Father. He told his disciples, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And so whenever we see Jesus doing something, we're seeing a little tiny aspect of the nature of God. And so Thomas isn't there that day. He's often called Doubting Thomas. Maybe you've heard that phrase. I think that's not a good, I don't, I don't want to call any of the apostles that. Um, the apostles did amazing things. Thomas would later go on, uh, tradition says, to plant churches all over India. I mean, he, he went just as far as any of the other original 12 in spreading uh, the gospel throughout the world. And so Thomas here, he gets a bad rap. At the very worst, he was really just late for a meeting. I mean, Thomas wasn't in the room at the right time. And so I have a lot of, I can, I can bond with Thomas on this issue. Have you ever missed out on a thing God was doing? That's, you know, they, they actually talk about today's culture, this uh, great uh, inability for us to detach from social media, from our friends, from anything important or anything we think is important. They call it the fear of missing out, Right. FOMA, fear of missing out, uh, or FOMO, whatever. Uh, and, and so this is, this is a major, you know, pop psychology kind of term. People are afraid of missing out. And so Thomas is, is not in the room. Now, by no means am I commending his doubt. I'm not saying that Thomas should be vindicated for his doubt. I'm just saying that what happened, what Thomas wanted is what all the other disciples had. And it's what you need, whether you realize it or not. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Jesus did that. He said, look at these. He, you know, these are the marks of wrath. He demonstrated this to the disciples. And then it says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. They saw the Lord after the hands and the side. It doesn't say that the disciples were glad. And while they were glad at the meeting, then Jesus then revealed himself. He showed, him, he showed them his hands and his side. And so Thomas wasn't there. He was late or didn't show up. And Thomas was simply demanding what every one of the other disciples had already experienced. They had faith. If you remember, you know, Thomas is accused of being a doubter. But if you remember Mary Magdalene, our, our reading last week, she shows up and says that Christ isn't there. And, and Peter and John go with her. They, you know, run to the tomb. But they're not exactly filled with faith. They're going there to just figure out what's going on. None of the other disciples believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. It came as a surprise and a shock to everyone, even though he told them plainly what they had heard, uh, what 
what was going to happen. And so that proves that what you need is not just audible teaching. You need the Holy Spirit to open up your ears so that you can hear the words of God. The psalmist says, uh, as a prayer to God, dig out my ear, literally pierce my ear so that your word might enter in because the entry of your word brings life. And so Thomas is just wanting every, you know, what they've experienced. Thomas says that he will neither believe unless he sees the hands nor the side. And so Thomas is demanding, demanding exactly what the other disciples received. And he is very adamant in this belief, so I can see why people would call him a doubter. It's certainly not commendable to doubt, as we will see over and over again today. But Thomas is simply wanting the same experience that the rest of them had. And unless you realize that Jesus Christ did die on the cross, that he was really raised from the dead, and it's the same guy, he didn't switch horses midstream, so to speak, This, then you have no faith. And so the, Jesus commends those in a, in a verse that we uh, talked about and sang, sung about, uh, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Beholding by faith, beholding by the Spirit is necessary. It's not necessary that God do a sign for you, that God do a miracle for you to, to confirm, but it is necessary that you behold with faith. So I want to talk about the nature of fear and this impacts your life, whether you have ever run from somebody in fear or not. If you grew up as an only child, you probably don't have many experiences running in fear. I myself have uh, become an expert in running in fear. It's uh, whenever you play hide and go seek, you don't use the best hiding places during the game. You need to see past the game. That's real strategy. You save the best hiding places for when you're running in fear. And so the nature of fear is really, it's real for us. We are afraid of things. We are afraid of losing our job, losing our marriage, car accidents, explosions in, you know, on airplanes. We're, we're afraid of everything. Fear is a perennial experience for the human condition. And I, I want to look at how the disciples uh, became afraid. Now, again, this is a question. I want you to meditate on this just for a few minutes. I don't want you to answer it now. But I want you to think about how was it that the disciples became unbelieving? It, it does say that they were afraid, and we can understand why they were afraid, but why did they become unbelieving? I want you to ponder that. Wouldn't their faith be strengthened? I mean, Jesus told them ahead of time that I'm going to die, and then I'm going, I'm going to be judged uh, unrighteous by those who are unrighteous, although I'm righteous. He's going to be judged. He's going to be sentenced to death. He's going to die, and then three days later, raised from the dead. Everything he plainly told them multiple times came true. Now, I don't know about you, if somebody came up to me and started like guessing lottery numbers and got like 20 in a row right, I would probably give them some cash because they're, they've, they're into something that I don't understand or they're rigging the numbers. They know what the next number is going to be. I'm almost going to guarantee it. Now, it's pretty improbable if they're just uh, guessing. It doesn't actually change the probability, but maybe they know something I don't. Maybe I should trust them. Jesus Christ, in explicit detail, foretold everything that would happen to him and defeated death and rose from the dead. And it says that they are here in fear and they're in unbelief. They're hiding away. Wouldn't you think that rather than unbelief, they would have more belief? Like if you were traveling with a group of people and somebody told you something was going to happen, somebody prophesied something, then that miraculous thing took place and all you, you weren't there, and all your buddies told you, wouldn't you think that you would believe? Wouldn't your faith be strengthened at the confirmation of events? 
So there's something going on why the disciples are doubting, why they are filled with unbelief that isn't related to fulfilled prophecy. And it's, it's related to something that we're going we're gonna to say explicitly here. But just ponder, what, what is it? I want to give you two examples in the life of Israel as a nation. Israel, if you are unfamiliar with the story, was given a commission by God to go into the land of Canaan to judge the nations who were full of wickedness in those lands to expel them, to throw them out, not necessarily to, to well, to destroy explicitly all of their gods, all of their material, but they were never given a command to hunt them down. If the, if the nations that were in the land saw that Israel was coming and fled, Israel was not commanded to leave the land of Canaan and chase them down. This is not genocide. This is God's explicit removal of a people from a piece of land, which had special place in his heart, and an installation of a righteous people governed by his law so that his glory would spread throughout the earth. That was Israel's great commission. And and Israel was given that commission in order for God to shine through her and to draw the nations to himself. And at first... That has a rocky start. We see a few battles that go wrongly in the nation of Israel and her history. Uh, <clears throat> but at one point, she becomes successful. King David shows up. He's a mighty man. He loves the Lord. He's a worshiper, and he's a military conqueror. He's, a, he's someone who goes around and, and wins victories, and he establishes good boundaries for the nation, and he pushes back the unrighteous peoples, and he starts to actually come pretty close to fulfilling the commission that God had given them. He doesn't do this ultimately because he is weak and he's a man just like you or I. Um, and so David falls from his mission a little bit, but then his, his uh, predecessors, those who come after him, uh, they, they take up this same command. They're, the mission hasn't changed, though David messed up once or twice. And as Israel conquered the nations in the land that God had commanded her to do so, she obeyed God, and then she began to install worshipers. Not only was David given a command to take land, he also, by the Spirit, foresaw a day when the Lord Yahweh would be worshipped, not just through prayers, not just through sacrifices, but also through song, through, through music, through poetry. And so David establishes a house of worship. It's called David's Tabernacle, and he pays Levites to uh, learn, music, uh, learn musical instruments, to play musical instruments, to play skillfully. Uh, sounds like a great job to me. Um, and, and he sets up this worshiping community and uh, establishes worship in spirit and truth in Israel. And so here Israel's given this command, David dies, Solomon comes al along, Solomon dies time and again, and then likely you know, likely result is they fall from grace. So look at what happens in Second Chronicles 20, 29, 30. And the fear of God came on all the kingdoms of the countries. The surrounding nations were all afraid of who? They were afraid of God. Now that fear of God, which we know of as Christians, is the same thing as being afraid of. Many people when they read the Bible, they say, oh, the fear of God, that's just a bad word. That's just an old word. I think that's a ridiculous idea and you should get rid of it because being afraid of God is not being afraid so as to fall away from him, but rather being afraid of God is knowing that if you do move away from him, you are outside of grace. 
That's what it means to fear the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Why? Because God is the one who has all knowledge. You fear the Lord, and so you become full of knowledge. You become full of wisdom. And so fear is the same thing as being afraid of. And so here, the fear of God is coming on all the nations. Why? When they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. These nations had heard from their surrounding neighbors, hey, when the Israelites came in, not only did they have a weaker army with less technology, with weaker swords, but they also won and they killed us. Like we're all gone. These cities that were on the map, take them off your maps. They're, they're no longer ours. They changed the name of the city. They killed everyone in it. We all ran and we're leaving. We're going you know, westward or eastward, anywhere but the land of Canaan. And so the fear of God came on all the surrounding nations. Why? They were afraid that they were going to be conquered. The fear of Israel, the fear that Israel would conquer, translated to what? The fear of God. And look at the peace that comes on the nation of Israel. So the realm, realm of Jehoshaphat, what a great name. If you're having a kid in the next few years, Jehoshaphat, it's a great name. You should consider it. Everybody loves Daniel. You know, Daniel, it's a great name. I love that name, but I want to go for like something crazy, like Azariah. I don't know. Uh, Mishael. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet. What a great name. For his God gave him rest all around. And then I have part of another verse. And so this is happening in the nation of Israel at a time of success. The fear of God comes on where? The other nations. Think it through. Why? Because they're afraid that the Lord fights with his people. He fights in the midst of their armies. So the fear of God comes on nations who are near Israel. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. And so here they are afraid. And look at what takes place. We know this story well. Israel falls from grace. She loses her mission and she begins to doubt God. She begins to doubt his promises. And I want to show you why that happened. Second Kings 17 through uh, verses seven and eight. This is talking about an exile. That's the context for the word this in verse seven. And this occurred, the exile occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord, their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, the, the ones who are writing scripture do not write scripture in this flowery, flowery way that they just pad it with a bunch of phrases that are meaningless. That's, in my opinion, the way certain writers write. That's why I don't like Tolkien. I, to me, I would rather just have like Reader's Digest Tolkien, which is why I love the movies. But Tolkien uses all of these, this language, and I'm not saying he's a bad writer. I'm saying I'm a terrible reader, and I should appreciate his writing more. But the point of all of this flowery language, all of these surrounding languages, to give context to what the writer is saying. And what the writer is saying here by bringing up the Exodus is that they had no right to be afraid of, of failure. What the writer of Second Kings is saying is that these people have forgotten the, the revelation of God that God gave them in a specific time, in a specific place. He isn't padding this. He's not just saying these, you know, any particular identification. If, if you're reading Second Kings, you know who the nation is. You don't need to be reminded, but the writer thinks you do. This occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Who is this one? The one who had brought them up out of the hand of Egypt and, under, and from under the hand of Pharaoh. And had, uh, they, had, they had not only sinned against their, their God, but look at what happens next. 
they feared the other gods. And they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So first we have Israel winning in victory. We have Israel remembering that the Lord himself fights for them. And the fear of God comes on the other nations. And look at what happens when Israel falls from grace, when they apparently need to be reminded who this Yahweh is, the one who rescued them out of the hand of Egypt, out from under the hand of Pharaoh. The, the fear of the other gods falls on them. And what happens after the fear of the other gods falls on them? It says in verse 8, And they walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had uh, uh, that the kings of Israel had practiced. So th this idea is that the leaders of Israel, the kings, the, the generations of, of faithless kings, what they had begun to do in letting the kingdom slip away, they had begun to become afraid of the surrounding nations. And in becoming afraid of the surrounding nations, they began to walk in the customs of those nations. Why is that? The Israelites feared the other nations and became exactly like that. The reason is, is because whatever you are afraid of, you focus on. And whatever you are afraid of distracts your focus from following Yahweh. And so whatever you fear, whatever you focus on, is an object of your, your focus, is an object of your worry, and whatever you behold, you become like. We know that over and over again from the prophets. Ezekiel 1 describes the throne room of God and it's on fire. And then he describes the angels of God and he calls them burning ones. Why are they burning? Are the angels the ones who have glory in themselves? No, it's because they're full of eyes within and without. And they're beholding the one who is full of flame, full uh, on fire. Jesus in Revelation 1 shows up with eyes that are what? A flame of fire. The reason why is he beholds God as he stands at the right hand. And so whatever you behold, you become like. And so that which you fear ultimately begins to shape your destiny, who you are. And so these Israelites, they began to fear the other gods, and then they began to walk in the practices of the other gods. And so whatever you fear, you become like, which is amazing because when you think of it, most of the time when we're afraid, we're trying to not be like that, or we're trying to not have that unfortunate circumstance come upon us, but it distracts your focus. And instead of having your focus stay true, it drifts. The disciples are full of unbelief because they began to fear the Jews who were full of unbelief, right? The Jews are the one who are confused upon the nature of Christ. They don't acknowledge him as the Messiah. And those who earlier had, remember Simon Peter's declaration when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so in the disciples' fear of this people group of the Jews, when they gave into that fear, they began to lose sight of what God's promise had been concerning the resurrection. And they began to allow their hearts to drift into unbelief because you become like whatever you fear. That's why the fear of Lord is the beginning of wisdom, because he's the all-wise one. So the Hebrew writer, likewise, in this same vein, warns us of the sin of unbelief. He tells the Christians who he's writing to, this, this Hebrew writer, he tells them to be wary of unbelief, and he also gives a, a demonstration much like what I gave a minute ago. Whenever there is a revelation of the nature of God, unbelief is no longer permissible. 
He shows us at the end of this chapter in Hebrews 3 how their disobedience was caused by their unbelief. Many people think today, oh, I just need to believe that God's a good God, and then I will then obey. But really, the scriptures present that unbelief and disobedience are married together. They are the same thing. And when you disobey God, when you disobey his word, it is because at a deep level, at a very subtle level, a level which you may not be able to perceive, you do not believe in the promises of God. You have become unbelieving that there are judgments to sin, that sin brings frustration. It, become, it brings God's wrath. It invites judgment. It invites correction. It destroys. It gives place to the devil. We're told to give no place, no, make no room for the flesh, right? We're to be holy as the Lord is holy. And so to sin, to go against God's will, is at some deep level to doubt the promises of God and the judgments of God, the warnings and the commendations of righteousness at a very deep level. And so sin and unbelief, disobedience and unbelief are joined together. You cannot sin without first not believing the promises of God. It's, it's inseparable. And so this unbelief is filled by disobedience and disobedience refuels unbelief. And the Hebrew writer is trying to make this clear by bringing up what happened in the old covenant when the Israelites were unfaithful in the wilderness. He says in verse 16, for who were those who had heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fall in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So he says that they will not enter, and then he identifies them as disobedient. And then the next verse is key. So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. Unbelief and disobedience are always joined together. Why does the Hebrew writer bring up this analogy? Why does he bring up uh, this, this account? It's because... The Israelites had lost their right to claim unbelief or to doubt God's word after seeing his power on display. In the Exodus, they received a revelation of God's nature as the one who would save, as the one who would deliver. And because of that revelation, they became accountable to that experience. You become accountable to what you hear. You become accountable to what you perceive in the nature of God. It is now a judgment on you if you should return to unbelief after seeing the one who is called faithful and true. You become accountable to it. And so he brings this up, not saying that God is just going around all whimsy-like and judging this person who's just as sinful as someone else. He says that they're held to a higher standard because they've seen who God is like. And that's why Jesus Christ then tells Thomas in this account, he commands him to believe. In verse 27, John 20, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That's a command. Jesus Christ gives Thomas a command. Why? Because Thomas has all the evidence of a God who bears wrath and not only bears wrath, defeats death and comes and says the word peace. That removes all room for you to doubt. He's telling Thomas that he no longer has an option, but rather to believe the one who he just beheld. And so Thomas here is commanded to believe. Belief is the only right response to the miraculous power of God being on display. After you see a revelation of the nature of God, it is no longer permissible to respond in unbelief and fear. It's no longer permissible. 
to not believe after seeing the proof is folly. That's absolutely true. I'm not a math whiz, but every once in a while I read these papers and I hear these like amazing statements by a, an, an academic or an educator on a theory, whether it's computer related or you know, business related. I hear this statement and then they begin to make an argument. And sometimes they lay out the argument step by step and they show every part of the argument. And then they show every part of the formula. And then they even show studies. And to having gone through all of that and then to still doubt the theory, when the theory is presented well and seems true and it's more plausible than its antithesis, is folly. It means you didn't gain anything from the reading. And so here, after having risen from the dead, paying the price of sin, and showing himself alive to Thomas, it would be folly for Thomas to reject the, the evidence. And so he's commanded to believe. We see how great a danger the sin of unbelief is in Hebrews 3, and how it leads to disobeying God, his design and purpose and mission for life, and therefore we absolutely must repent. It is no longer uh, a permissible thing for you to remain in unbelief concerning God's mission for you, his mission for your life, his will for your life, your family. It's no longer permissible after seeing a miraculous God who stops at no end to rescue you from your brokenness and your sin. Now, I'm not saying that this means you have no more pain in life, that you don't have any more, you know, times of struggle. In fact, I believe that it's only people who are full of belief in the good promise of God that can make it through those times. But what I'm saying is that you are no longer allowed to stand on sinking sands of doubt and unbelief after seeing the miraculous power of God. It's no longer an option. So, if you at all suspect unbelief in your heart, what is the remedy? We've, I mean, I've proven it to myself again, as if I needed any more reminders that I have unbelief concerning God's call on my life in some aspect at any level. And that unbelief is not justified any longer because I've seen the one who does signs and wonders. He does miracles. He rose from the dead. And not only that, he still makes people alive today. And so after having acknowledged that I have unbelief, what do you do about it? Do you just like pray hard? Do you fast? That might help, but it's not going to get you there completely. In fact, I think the, the proof of the remedy is right here in the text at the end of John 20, at the end of our reading today. John 20, 31 through 30, uh, sorry, 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I want to really briefly um, it's not part of our reading today, but I want to really briefly read John 21, 25, the end of the gospel of John. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Give, give ponder to that for just a second. John, the gospel writer, is saying that he's covered this, this ministry of Jesus in the earth. And he ends the gospel, which he wrote for a specific purpose, saying something that is just amazing, that if the whole world was filled with books, it wouldn't be able to contain the things that Jesus Christ did. That's amazing. And we know that John is probably true. It's probably right. It's absolutely right. And so John here is saying that the reason he's written the gospel is to give a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
And even if it were possible to fill the world completely, there would be still things lacking. And so in verse uh, 31, John is, is closing his gospel. These are the last few chapters, last few words of his gospel. And he's giving a demonstration to the reader of what the purpose is for the gospel. He says, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, my, that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus tells Thomas to no longer doubt, do not be unbelieving, but rather believe. It's not enough to get rid of some unbelief and then just as if it were even possible, stop in some hypothetical middle in which you're just ambivalent. You're either, oh, well, I believe or I don't believe. You cannot either unbelieve or believe. You can't be in the middle somewhere. There's no middle. Not believing is responded to. It's corrected by believing. The gauge has to go fully over. And so John here is saying that these are written so that you may believe. What's the end result is that by reading, by meditation, by proclaiming the gospel, we may, through the scriptures, by faith, aided by the Holy Spirit, perceive and behold Jesus Christ, the one who is amazing, the one who is going about doing good, healing all who were sick, and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Beholding Jesus Christ through the lens of scripture is the way in which we believe. Now, faith comes by what? Hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. Not going out into a field and practicing some mystical thing. Not praying off for another secret revelation of God. Not hoping that one day you become mature enough in order to have a stable walk. You hear and receive faith. You hear by the word of God. It is given to you the scripture uh, that the scriptures would be for you a place to encounter, to behold the one who is miraculous. And by beholding him, he can begin to start to work through your life. I absolutely am convinced that God will not put any blessing. He won't respond in any way. He won't put any favor in, in terms of the miraculous, in terms of going after living out a good Christian walk on those who are filled with unbelief. So the answer to how you get to the place where God is working through you to touch lives around you, people who need their lives restored, whether, whether they're not following the Lord, whether they need a sickness uh, healed, whether they need deliverance from their dysfunction and the demons which plague them, whatever they need in any area, if they just need to become mature, you have the ability to touch them. Jesus is establishing and declaring peace to the disciples to send them on the mission of, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. That means that you are supposed to be doing the things that Jesus Christ did in the scriptures. It doesn't mean that Jesus is saying, I want you to go and work in society and be quiet about things. And then every once in a while, an unbeliever will be woken up by the spirit so that they'll see that you were a Christian the whole time. That's not what he says. He says, I'm sending you in the world as the father sent me to do what? To heal the sick, to bind up the brokenhearted, to cleanse the lepers, to raise the dead. It doesn't mean that Jesus is sending us into culture so that we would influence it slowly over time. Although I do believe that the evidence of history proves that Christianity is the only basis for society. But Jesus Christ is sending us on a mission of mercy to touch broken people around us. And if he's sending us there, then that means we really do have to get honest with our unbelief. I know I've been cleaning house at home for a while on this issue. And I would say that the only way that I've seen the scriptures give remedy to this condition 
is to call you to see the one, to behold by faith through the scriptures, the one who binds up the brokenhearted, who heals the leper, he heals the sick. That understanding is the only thing that I know of to get out of unbelief. You can't just, you know, get all introspective and consider your sins and think about, you know, how you might live differently and, and root it out as if you were your own doctor. You need another. You need grace to be injected in your life. The way to get rid of unbelief is for you to feed your heart on the news of what God is doing rather than cultivating disappointment on what he hasn't done. It is not right to say that because God doesn't currently operate in signs and wonders through his church in America now or in this church or in my life, that doesn't make doctrine, right? You get your doctrine from scripture, not your own experience. Feeding your heart, therefore, on disappointment Feeding your heart on what God hasn't done rather than feeding your heart on what God has done is folly. And to do so will not deliver you from unbelief. It will not justify you in saying, well, I don't think it's right to believe this, or I don't think it's right for God to heal people today. I don't think it's right for the gospel to go forth because I'm not currently preaching it. That's not the right answer, obviously. And so the way to get rid of unbelief is to turn your focus, to turn your attention away from what? The fear, the unbelief, the fear of man, the anxiety about tomorrow, and to turn your attention to the one who is setting things right. The one who we believe is currently reigning over the world, that he's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords, the one who is bringing about history in order to fulfill his purpose and to fulfill the covenant which he made with the Father. That is what Jesus Christ is doing as he is sitting on the throne of heaven. And so we are to turn our focus away from what he's not doing and to start looking at what he is doing. The repentance from unbelief comes through meditation on the nature of God, a God who heals, restores, puts right, brings mercy, suffered in our place, and defeats all of our enemies. Jesus Christ left no enemy for you that has not already been defeated. And you are simply walking out that victory. And in seeing the mercy of Christ, we behold him and he illuminates our hearts. That's the only way that I know of to get rid of unbelief, is to look on the one who's faithful and true. If you, if you believe what I said earlier, that you behold what you become, then if you are filled with unbelief, the answer is to behold the one who's faithful. That's all I know about getting rid of unbelief. So we're going to do that now as we pray. Father, we do ask that you would give us an understanding of your mission that you do wish to send us on, that we talked about last week, that you are sending us into the world as the Father sent you into the world. Lord, I pray that you would give us a heart that would seek to know your scriptures, that we wouldn't seek to know them just academically or just to appreciate the language, but Lord, making use of all our learning, all our study, that we would really behold you through what's written, that we would take John, the gospel writer, at face value when he says that these things are written so that you may believe. Lord, I pray that you would show us the areas of our lives in which we are holding out on you by harboring faithlessness, by harboring unbelief, by harboring doubt. Lord, I pray that you would give us a holy conviction about areas that we need to rethink, that we need to change in. God, I pray that you would give to us a, a right understanding of, of your mission that you're sending us on and that we would be completely unsatisfied 
until we begin to see little glimpses and then those little glimpses become a lifestyle. God, I pray that you do this work in me, in our church, as we come and take communion, as we fellowship with you, that you would speak to us like Thomas and say, do not believe, but only believe. In Jesus' mighty name.